Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Alan Goldfarb. But first, a message on behalf of NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association. When COVID-19 hit, the doors to independent venues across the country closed. Attending live concerts stopped. Now, independent venues and promoters from every state in the U.S. are banding together to fight for survival. They were the first to close, and they'll be the last to open. And the fact is, many of them, our neighborhood venues, are at risk of closing their doors forever. More information is available online. Just seek out and follow the hashtag SaveOurStages. This message is brought to you by Neva, a 501c6. Alan Goldfarb has been a wine journalist for the better part of 30 years. In that work, he has covered the business, art, and science of winemaking, as well as drinking and eating, cultural, legal, and even the political aspects of the wine industry. Alan grew up in the ethnically diverse streets of 1950s Brooklyn, where he developed not only a love of sports through the Brooklyn Dodgers, but a sense of social justice growing up in a family that celebrated black contributions to arts and culture. Alan is a direct connection to an earlier type of big city journalist like Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, who happened to leave this mortal coil less than 24 hours after we discussed him in this very recording. Please enjoy my conversation with Alan Goldfarb. Well, let me uh, let me start at the very beginning, if uh, if I can. Where uh, where did you grow up? In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, where I lived in Brooklyn for about twenty years. Where did you? Where were you? I bet you're not in my Brooklyn. Uh, I was in in the old Brooklyn, not the new Brooklyn. Uh, in South in South Brooklyn, uh, near Coney Island, in a uh, neighborhood co- called Bensonhurst. Yeah, it transformed now, I suppose, like most of Brooklyn. Do you get back? I haven't been back uh, for a long time. I, um, I've been out here for 45 years, and I've been back maybe a uh, half dozen times. The neighborhood was uh, just about 100% Italian and Jewish, uh, uh, divided down the middle. And, uh, but now I think there are a lot of Chinese there which I missed out because Chinese food is my favorite thing. <laughs> and there, there must be some really great Chinese restaurants there now. Yeah. I mean, Brooklyn and Queens both are just such wonderful places to eat your way through. It's so ethnic and so diverse. Yeah. I lived in Carroll Garden, so uh, very much brownstone Brooklyn, and, um, yeah. but also very Italian. And uh, when I first moved into the neighborhood, there were still gentlemen in the trap suits standing on the corners. There was uh, no street crime whatsoever. <laughs> this is the most safe place to be. <laughs> if, uh, if a car got broken into or anybody got hassled on the streets, um, word would go out. And uh, if it was a teen- local teenager or something, they would knock it off pretty quickly. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you a little uh, anecdote. Um, my uh, Jewish aunt married a, a Sicilian man in Brooklyn, and um, my uncle Tommy, uh, uh, he wasn't connected, uh, I, or maybe he was that I, I didn't know it. However, uh, their house was burglarized one night, and this is a long time ago, so there was lots of jewelry and furs, and um, as the story goes, uh, Tommy made a call, and the next day, they got everything back. <laughs> That's a Brooklyn story right there. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, well, the, uh, where, where, where I grew up, uh, uh, it was a lot of ma- mafia people. I, there was no presence as far as I knew. I was a kid. But uh, there were a lot of uh, mafia lived in that part of Brooklyn. Yeah. And so can you paint a little bit more of the picture um what was Bensonhurst like? What was the environment that you grew up in? Well, as I said, it was um, 100%, almost 100% uh, Italian and Jewish, divided down the middle. And for the most part, we all got along. It was um, <clears throat> lower middle class and middle class, all working people. 
it's interesting. I say um, it was uh, 100%, almost 100% Italian and Jewish. It wasn't until many, many years later here in uh, the Bay Area, I was asked to participate in a school um, uh, professional jobs um, seminar. And among the the um, uh, the people speaking that day was a woman, and we started talking, and she said she was from Bensonhurst too, and her name was it was an Irish name, and I said you didn't live in Brooklyn in Bensonhurst, and she said yes I did, and she gave me the address which was two blocks from my house. I didn't know I didn't meet a wasp until I went to college when I was eighteen years old in in the Midwest. That's how. <laughs> insulated um, my neighborhood was. And, and here was this uh, Irish woman uh, who lived two blocks away. That's so funny. What took you out of Brooklyn? You said you went to college in the Midwest. Where did you go? What were you studying? And sort of how did a, how did a young man growing up in Brooklyn uh, even conceptualize what the Midwest meant? <laughs> I had no idea what Midwest meant. Um, I, I wanted to get away from home. I wanted to study journalism. Uh, since the ninth grade, I was interested in journalism, and specifically, I wanted to be a, uh, a, a sports writer because I was so influenced by uh, the sports writers uh, at the New York Post and the uh, the Daily News. Our family didn't read the Times. It was uh, too um, upper class for us, and I wasn't a very good student, and so this, the, the school's... Uh, uh, I was able to get into or limited, uh, and I found the school with a really great journalism uh, department, and that was Southern Illinois University in deep rural uh, Illinois, uh, 90 miles from the Mason-Dixon line. Wow. Wow. Um, what was that transition like? It was fascinating in that um, the school... Uh, when we were accepted, I was accepted, they put us uh, in touch with uh, several other guys in Brooklyn who were accepted uh, to Southern Illinois that year. And it turned out to be about 15 or 20 of us, amazingly. And we met, I remember we met in a diner uh, one one evening uh, in Brooklyn, and we all left together on the same plane, and um, only two of us graduated. Wow. Uh, it was so different. It was from anything that I ever experienced, and uh, it, it was difficult getting acclimated. But I also knew that it was wonderful because uh, I was getting exposed to uh, different kinds of people for the first time in my life as an 18 to 20 year old, and um, I stuck it out. And uh, it was um, it was great uh, school. Uh, it was a wonderful place, actually, to go to school. It was a beautiful school. Great journalism department, it turns out. Uh, and I was very fortunate. I did very well in journalism. Not very good in other subjects, but I learned many, many life lessons. Who were, um, who were some of the journalists that you read and admired in New York during that era? Who do, you, do you recall who the, sort of, who the heroes were, whether sports writers or otherwise? Yeah, there was, um, I think, of the Post uh, generally, was the afternoon paper. Remember those days? There were afternoon papers and morning papers. Um, so in the Post, I think there was uh, Vic Ziegel, Maury Allen. These sports writers, we're talking about, what years? We're talking about late 50s to early 60s. And they became known as the Chipmunks. How they got that name, I have no idea. But what they were, were iconoclastic sports writers. Nobody ever wrote like them before because, remember um, Howard Cosell's, uh, his motto was, uh, tell it like it is? Mm -hmm. Well, that's how these guys wrote and covered all New York sports. They said things uh, and wrote things about uh, athletes that never had been disclosed before. You know, there had been a tacit... Um, uh, agreement among sports writers and, and athletes back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, you just wrote about what, what took place out on the field. But here in the 50s and 60s, along came these chipmunks who 
did not travel with the team. Heretofore, um, writers traveled with the team, so uh, they always played cards together and drank together and uh, became pals together. And uh, But now things were changing, um, and which freed up these writers to write things uh, that were happening off the field with these athletes. And that's why we saw stories about heavy drinking among the Yankees, Mickey Mantle, Billy Martin, fights like that. Of course, the, the players hated it, uh, but it made for incredible uh, writing and journalism, and I just loved it, and I thought it was amazingly um, fascinating to me, and, and that's what I sought to do, to become a sports writer, and that's what I did. Yeah. How aware or interested in were you um, of guys like Pete Hamill, or gay police, like were they relevant in your in your younger life as a reader or a writer? Not so much gay police because he was more or less an, um, a book author. But Pete Hamill, uh, I believe he wrote for the Post, uh, who was a, a wonderful writer and fascinating. Uh, wrote about city politics and uh, yes, so you know it, it was very interesting. Uh, I, I love to tell the story. Growing up uh, as a boy, as I did in uh, Brooklyn in the 50s, I became a great baseball fan. And um, my first game that I ever saw uh, live, I think was in 1952-53 season. Uh, I remember going to Ebbets Field and walking up the ramp. It was depicted wonderfully in... Um, Bull Durham, I think, um, you walk up the ramp and all you saw on the horizon was the greenest green I've ever seen in my life. Uh, because growing up in Brooklyn, there, of course, there were trees and there were parks and there were, but, you know, not that prevalent. And so now seeing this, this vivid green and then finally get, seeing the players on the field in their colorful uniforms, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I, I, I wanted to eat it. That's how I try to, I try to ingest it. it. Almost, of course, not literally, but, but that's what I wanted to do. And it was so exciting and thrilling. And I got to see Jackie Robinson. Oh. I got to see Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb. And my father... Um, who was also a fan and told me about Jackie and racism. I was a nine-year-old boy. I didn't really understand that much, but it was the beginning of my political awakening that's never dissipated to this day. Uh, and that, so there was Jackie and the plight of black athletes coupled with seven or eight years later when the Dodgers along with the Giants, left New York mm. yeah, after the 57 season. I was a 15-year-old boy, and the Dodgers were my whole life. I had pictures on the wall, and uh, that's all I was interested in. And they're leaving? How can that be? Um, we love them. There are lots of people in the stands every game. Why are they leaving? And it wasn't until several years later that I realized that it was all about capitalism. It was all about money. It had nothing to do with loyalty. So that added to my political awakening. And yes, it's, it was sports, and, but yet it was so much more and so much um, more um, important and um, informed the, the rest of my life. That's never dissipated. And um, you were going to ask me something. I'm curious about, um, I, I hope this isn't too frivolous of a question coming on the heels of what you just said, but how did the Dodgers leaving, if at all, change your, your sort of relationship to the sport of baseball and your sort of sentiment around the other side of loyalty in terms of like, how you felt about teams. Like, did you, did you ever establish the same devotion to another team um, as you had to the Dodgers? I tried to conduct my life um, as true as I see it. And uh, it's not always easy. Uh, for instance, uh, I'm very quick to um, 
not be loyal to a brand or a store that um, is anti-union, like Whole Foods. Um, I, but when it came to baseball, which I loved so much, there was a period that I did abandon it, and it, that was in the um, the mid '60s during the Vietnam War, when it it was I realized it was frivolous, and there were much many more important things to focus on. And there was a period of about ten years that I didn't watch, and that was um, out here. Uh, I, I left uh, New York in '73. I quickly I, I was I was still uh, I was writing about sports, and uh, I covered the A's. And I secretly adopted the A's as my my replacement for the Dodgers. And to this day, I hate the Dodgers you know, for what they did to me. But over the years, especially around baseball, there's been so much politics and so much bad politics and uh, bad ownership. Baseball was one of the things that I, I, I was not true to myself and couldn't give up. It was like a, it was like a drug. Um, so I've, I, 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 so I started watching again. Uh, I allowed myself, uh, after the Vietnam War to, um, to watch again. And I watch to this day, I, I watch these, uh, games with these cardboard cutouts and, um, uh, piped in, uh, sounds, which are not real, but yet I'm able to focus on the field and the players and, um, and then I see them not wearing masks and hugging each other, and I, I understand it on some level. But then I say, You're "Stupid! What are you doing?" You... <laughs> so it's yeah. mixed emotions for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd be forgiven that that era of the athletics. I mean, the early mid seventies was an exciting time to be a A's fan. I would think. Yes, uh, uh, in seventy three when I came, uh, I covered the World Series. Um, they won. Yeah. Well, you know, a friend of mine who I, I've enjoyed a lot of baseball with over the years, we shared a season ticket package for the Yankees. We like, he's actually a bit more hardcore than I am. He, he travels quite a bit, like builds some, some of his summer vacations around visiting stadiums. He likes to sort of collect visiting stadiums. But he said to me the other day in, in the context of what baseball is going through right now, he said, man, they, they never managed to do everything wrong. <laughs> or they never manage not to do everything wrong. Like if, if a wrong decision can be made, the owners make it. Um, whether it's player relations, public relations, how they treat the fans. It's just, it's such, it's so tone deaf. And I, I've, I've, I've had a, your, your struggle or your situation resonates for me because, you know, I, I'm a Yankees fan and there's times when I feel like that team just hates its fans. <laughs> they, they, it's like they antagonize us. Um, when they opened the new stadium, it's so unpleasant unless you're unless you're fabulously wealthy. Like it's such a it's such a clear delineation between the experience a wealthy person can have at the stadium versus the experience everybody else has, whether it's the sight lines or obstructed view or the prices of concession. I mean, you know, the list is endless, and it, it's it's sort of boring to rant about it. But no, it's not. Um, it it's not boring yeah. at all, Lawrence. Uh, it's actually, uh, I've thought about what you just said for many, many years. First, sports in many ways is a microcosm of, of the greater society, right? Uh, you mentioned these owners are stone de uh, tone deaf. Well, you know, who are they? Of course, they are the, among the one percenters and they've lived a cloistered life. And l let me tell you something. Growing up in Brooklyn, as I did, as being a Dodger fan, the word on the street in those days in the 50s, the Dodgers and Giants were the people's team. The Yankees were not the people's team, were the capitalists. And it, it was emblematic, don't you think, in their uniforms, pinstripes, pinstripe suits. I always hated the Yankees. <laughs> and, and it was mainly, mainly because of the perception of being capitalists 
Uh, and also I was jealous as hell because they won all the time and they beat the shit out of us every year except one <laughs> year in 1955. <laughs> so it must have been an special affront to you when Reggie Jackson left to go to the Yankees. <laughs> well, you know, as an adult, uh, I wasn't as invested as I was as a kid, even though I, 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 I actually glommed onto the A's because I, I knew I, I wanted a team to root for, but it, it wasn't the same. Um, also being a sports writer for so many years, you know, uh, part of the ethos of being a sports writer, um, sports writers don't root. You certainly don't root in the press box and you don't root in your coverage and your writing. Uh, I don't know about other sports writers, but of course, when I went home, I rooted you know, watch the games, and um, and so you're able to um, uh, bifurcate very easily um, your professional um, regard and, and, and your personal. So, yeah, Reggie leaving, I, I knew it was, again, it, it, it was all part of the, the capitalist uh, hierarchy, uh, who gets the best players, you know, yeah. and that, of yeah. course, were the Yankees. All right. Well, let, let me rewind a little bit if I can. So you go to journalism school and um, take me through that. What, what is, what's the, what's the, what's the education in journalism? And you walk out of school with the, with the paper. What don't you know that's relevant to a career in journalism? What, what do they leave out of the curriculum that's sort of vital for you to know? I think like probably like every other profession, you really don't know anything until you actually get into doing it. So what is it when you go to school to be trained in something? You're learning the very basics. Hopefully you've learned some uh, good lessons. The best lesson, if I may digress for a moment, the best lesson that I learned uh, in journalism school was to be fair and balanced. Mm. That was Journalism 101. It was the very first course. And to this day, for me, I hope that I've been able to adhere to that uh, ethic. It deviates some or a lot when one is a columnist. The nature of a columnist is not as a reporter where fair and balanced is demanded. As a columnist, you are able to express your opinion, and I have over the years. But it, that fair and balanced thing has always been there uh, for me, and uh, it's inculcated uh, in my marrow, and it, it just infuriates me uh, no end when um, uh, Fox News can say they're fair and balanced when it's so the opposite, and it's such a lie. Um, so I, I don't know if that answered you, your question. Uh, you, you can probe a little bit more on the question because I actually forgot the, the original question. No, no, that's okay. I, I think, I think this, the topic of like the difference between the columnist or the editorial versus, um, you know, I don't know what the right way is straight journalism. I wonder if, if you could tell me a little bit about in the actual practice in the field, is it possible um, or is it sort of um, forbidden can you be a col- can you bounce between the two? Can you be a columnist within the field that you're after, that you're also doing um, straight journalism in, or is it once you once you bridge the divide into into opinion work, do you have to make the decision to not go back? How does how does that work? What what's the what's how does the field view that? Well, uh, the short answer is I, uh, no, no, you can't once you're. A columnist, you, you can't go back, and and, and most don't. I, I am not the right person to ask that that question of because my career has spanned I don't know fifty years perhaps, and of those fifty years, I've probably worked for an organization maybe ten years. Uh, so I was always a freelance, generally um, uh, most of the time a freelance, and there I went back and forth. Uh, b- between straight reporting and uh, and uh, columns, depending on for whom I was writing, and I and I wrote for many different publications simultaneously. 
uh, being uh, a freelance. So I'm not the exact right person, but take uh, Pete Hamill for as as a uh, as an example. He became a columnist. He was a reporter, and then he became a columnist, and um, that's what he did. He was an opinion maker, and um, so in general, no, you can't. They have to be uh, separated. Yeah. Just as there has been an unspoken wall between the journalists at a publication and the advertising department. A lot of that has been um, crossed over into each other's boundaries over the years. It's uh, not as pure as it used to be. And for that, it's a damn shame. I'm sure at New York Times, the Wash Post, uh, that um, unwritten uh, separation uh, still, still holds. Yeah, uh, you'd like to hope. <laughs> One would like to hope. Right. Uh, yes, and it's very difficult, and uh, things are just not as they uh, once were, and for the better and for for the worse. Yeah, yeah. So when you first came out of journalism school, you, you began your career as a sports journalist? Yes, uh, I was very lucky, uh, almost... Uh, Less than a year after school, I landed a, a sports writer job at Newsday uh, on Long Island. In those days, it was a really good newspaper. Uh, the publisher was Bill Moyers. But I was stuck out in the, uh, the far reaches of uh, Long Island in uh, Suffolk County in Ronkonkoma. Uh, and my beat was as a, as a high school reporter. No kid, So covering high school sports, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. That Newsday, I, that, that's that's stunning to me. In fact, I actually I consider myself a bit of a of a nerd about Bill Moyers. And I don't think I knew that about you. So I that you filled in a blind spot. He was a, a very short-lived um, uh, publisher of uh, Newsday. Yeah, I remember bumping into him one day on the stairs uh, uh, at the paper. I probably just said hello or something like that, and that was it. <laughs> But I was so glad was, that I was affiliated with him. Yeah, what a, what an amazing uh, what an amazing career he's had. Yeah, such important work. Um, his broadcast journalism is just yes. He, when, yes. when he when he left television for the last time after that PBS show, I, just, I mean, he was so good during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, leading up to the. I don't remember if he was on through the financial crisis. I, I just his stories during during the mid aughts were just. So incisive and uh, such such clarity, huh? Such, such clarity, clarity that he, yeah, that he spoke the way he spoke and and the way he laid out um, um, the arguments and also for for and against. It was mostly, I guess we could consider him uh, more on the left wing, but but he did lay out both sides of the of the issue generally and. Um, so that it made him a great journalist. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, <laughs> having that authority of multiple decades of perspective, you know, he'd seen so much. He'd seen so, so much. Really amazing. So you, you spoke earlier about sort of the, um, you didn't quite say it this way, so forgive me if I paraphrase wrong, but a bit of a, um, a social awakening or, or at least uh, um, an introduction to, to social awareness through your dad and through sports. And um, could you, could you, carry that thread forward for me into your adult life and um, how it how it paralleled and or intersected with your journalism career? Well, it, it was mostly social uh, awareness and political awareness. My dad um, never finished high school, uh, but yet he um, he had the proclivities, the, the desire, the wish to uh, be um, intelligent and um, he didn't read very much, but he was an intelligent man. He was a good thinker, but not good enough because he didn't have the um, education or the exposure actually, because he was more of a very lower uh, middle-class growing up in um, Brownsville and Coney Island. But yet he always, talked to me about uh, social issues, and one was about uh, Jackie, 
uh, Robinson. Uh, he was a great jazz fan. And uh, whenever he was flush on a Friday after work, he would come home with a couple of albums under his arm. And all weekend long, uh, the family, uh, we listened to the, that music and we danced uh, together as a family. Um, uh, I had a sister and um, my mother. And most of the artists were black. And he always spoke reverently about them. And it instilled a... Um, an ethos in me that um, these were wonderful, valuable people um, who were contributing uh, and making people joyful. And then that coupled with, with the with the sports, uh, you know, he told me um, that my grandfather, his father, was a big um, I'll use a Yiddish term, a big macher, a big deal. Um, in the local Bensonhurst Communist Party. He was a treasurer of the Communist Party in Bensonhurst. So it was just a small uh, membership. But, you know, every neighborhood had a Communist Party in those days. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't Russian communists. It, it was more socialism. They were, um, they were fighting for unions and... Uh, and look how much great work they did uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s with unions. So all of that instilled in me, um, which to this day um, is who I am. Um, uh, and and he he would have been proud. Uh, he he lived a long life. He lived till 92. Died only about seven years ago always railed against um, what was going on uh, in the country. Uh, he would, he would just be beside himself uh, uh, knowing what's going on in the country uh, today. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. Do you know uh, your family history in terms of when, when your, uh, your parents' families came to America? I don't know much about it, and it, it, it's always been a, a source of, um, of, of uh, curiosity. Uh, as the story goes, both uh, uh, mother and father's families came over from Poland in 1914, uh, just uh, as World War One was breaking out, and... Um, as far as I know, we didn't know anyone who was lost in the Holocaust. Uh, there must have been. They must have left family behind, but they never spoke of it. Um, but my grandfather, the name was Goldfarb, but, but the, as the story goes, the family lore is that that wasn't his real name. Mm. Um it's not a very, it's not a Polish name. I don't know. It's more German, I think. Um, but he thought that the only way he could get into America was to have a relative here. And he had one friend whose name was Goldfarb, and that was the name he used. <laughs> That's how the story goes. So we've never been able to prove or disprove that. Uh, like, Cousin and I have um, searched high and low over the years to try to find uh, out the truth, but we've never gotten very far. So I don't really know the story of uh, of my family, only that uh, both sets of family came from Poland. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would imagine the name change on sort of gives you a dead end with genealogy. Uh, That's right, genealogy. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, we have we so, have a, we have a name, but we don't know how to pronounce it, or we we don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> how um, how does it come to pass that you spend the majority of your career as a freelancer? That that seems like a very um, it's an intentional but a difficult choice, or 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 a, um, you didn't take the easy road. It sounds no, I didn't. Um, <sighs> Uh, I, I think I'd have to go into to deeper psychology. <laughs> and I don't know if this is the right form for that. If you'd like to lay down uh, and put your feet up, we can. 
Well, that's part of it. I like to lay down to put my feet up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Can only get caught doing that in the office so many times. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Easy answer is um, that my personality is such that, you know, I, I was made for this pandemic in a um, perverse sort of way in that um, as far as working is concerned, my working today is no different than what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago because I've always worked from home. I've always worked, uh, generally always worked by myself and I've always preferred it that way. And um, the few times that I worked in an office, um, I didn't really like it. It wasn't really me. I felt constricted. Uh, just um, I'm a social person, but but I also like to be by myself and be alone. It's yeah. a dichotomy. Did, did that path allow you to pursue more diversity of subject matter or not necessarily? Was that an element to it? When I um, came to these shores, uh, uh, the, the left coast, uh, in, in 73, uh, I quickly realized that the number one sport in the Bay Area was food and wine. Hmm. Not necessarily sports. Uh, and while I continued uh, writing about sports uh, off and on for about 10 years, I was always attracted and excited and thrilled about food and then secondarily wine. And it wasn't until years later that I realized where that came from. I mentioned my Jewish aunt who married a Sicilian man in Brooklyn. And they had more money than us, and so they had the finest cuts of meat and great breads. And uh, Esther became a, a, an incredible uh, Italian cook. And we were at their house almost every Sunday for Sunday supper, as Italians are uh, want to do at about 4 o'clock on Sundays. And the food was magnificent, and um, there was always wine on the table. There was espresso uh, after dinner. Uh, we're talking about in the 50s. And um, my aunt was also beautiful. She looked like Ava Gardner. And I was, I was in love with her. And so all of that coalesced, you know, around the table, and it was so wonderful and uh, thrilling and uh, heartwarming. And uh, it just inculcated in me that, that feeling of well-being, I guess, food and then wine. And so when I came here uh, in California, I decided that I, that's what I want to do now. I wanted to write about food and then wine. And so I did. Uh, I, I was, did some restaurant reviewing for the old San Francisco Examiner um, and a couple of other uh, weekly newspapers. But then I was getting more and more interested in wine because it was so accessible, and I would go up to uh, uh, to Napa a lot uh, by myself. And I remember making the decision to become a full-time wine writer. In a way, it's a frivolous reason, but. Uh, in my mind, I was thinking, and maybe this will answer your question, your earlier question about why did I always freelance or mostly freelance. There was something about being a sports writer, especially around the uh, my friends that I was hanging around with who were intellectuals and uh, uh, into politics, and sports was frivolous to them. And I thought, well, maybe if I write about wine, it would be more accepted and more uh, elevated. <laughs> um, and that's what helped me uh, make the decision to, uh, to leave sports and to begin writing about uh, wine. And, uh, but I approached it from a multifaceted way of wine writing in that um, most wine writers taste wine and review wines. And I did that as well. But I wanted to broaden the scope. And so I covered wine from an agricultural viewpoint. It was an agricultural product. I covered it from a business standpoint because it was 
a viable business, an important business in California. From a political standpoint, there are a lot of politics involved in the wine industry and how they conduct their business. And so that's how I approached it. And I considered, considered myself a wine journalist, not a wine writer. Yeah. Um, I can understand. So that's how I, I not only rationalized it, but I also found a niche uh, for that, uh, that expression. And the wine industry that you started to make your way into, I, I'm assuming roughly 40, 45 years ago in California, what would be some of the biggest markers of change in that industry? How, or how has that, um, you know, as an observer, how, how would you talk about the last 40 years in the California wine industry? I started writing, uh, I, ha- I remember having my first wine column uh, in 1981, uh, a little um, uh, paper out in uh, Pleasanton, and uh, so I covered the uh, the Livermore Valley, which in those days was 90% Wente, and then I um, I did that for only about a year, and was uh, let go uh, in a ec- economic um, purge, actually, what it, what it was. And I'm digressing a bit here, but I'll get back to the, to the premise of your question. Um, I, I couldn't find a job back in, in journalism, so I opened a coffee house in San Francisco in 1976 because I wanted... I was in a place in the city... Uh, called Glen Park, that to, to this day, not that many people know about. It's right in the center of the city, and it, it was uh, an enclosed neighborhood. There were hills on one side, and um, people were be- beginning to come over from Noe Valley because they couldn't afford to live in Noe Valley any longer. This is in the, in the mid-'70s. And so there were artists and musicians and poets beginning to live in Glen Park. And I wanted to be around those folks. So I opened this little coffee house. And sure enough, I had artists and musicians and poets come in all the time. And it was fabulous. But I was a terrible businessman. Um, (laughs) uh, I had it for five years. It was actually the hardest work I'd ever done in my life. And I learned more things about uh, food. Uh, uh, in so doing, um, but I sold it after five years, and it's still there to this day. I opened it in '76, and this is uh, to 2020. So, how many years is that? Higher Grounds is still there. Wow! And uh, I, I'm very proud of that, actually. But then I got that's w- right after that is when I began seriously writing about wine, and I took a job as the wine editor of the St. Helena Star up in the Napa Valley, which was a minor league newspaper in the major leagues. Here I was covering wine, covering the New York Yankees of wine. Yeah. And uh, I, was, I did it for three years, and uh, it was an amazing experience. I, I was at the peak of my, um, my writing powers. I became... I thought a really good journalist and a really good writer. And uh, it, it was a weekly. And so I had, uh, uh, I did a winery profile. I did a business story or an agricultural story. And then I had a column. And in the column is when I expressed my thoughts and opinions. And leaning on those um, chipmunks, sports writers, when I was growing up in Brooklyn, I wrote my column as they wrote their columns and they did it with irony. And irony gives you a sense of pulling the punch but really saying what, what, needs, what you think needs to be said. And that's how I wrote this column and I um, survived for a while and I made a lot of enemies but I also made a lot of friends who were hip enough to realize what I was saying and how I was saying it and were able to read between the lines. 
And that was a great experience for me. That's incredible. Uh, I would also, I mean, I'm overlaying this onto what you just said. So if it's a bridge too far, um, I'll, I'll retreat. But it would also There's seem no that, that... No, no such thing, Lawrence. <laughs> no such thing. That, that voice at that period of time, given the change that was going on, I would think, in the wine industry, in terms of specifically new entrants or people from outside the, the sort of first generation or so of California wineries, as, as new people, whether it was like the Coppola's or, you know, that's just a name brand. But as other people came in from the outside world to grow and penetrate that industry, I would think that that voice in particular must have been one that appealed to them as they were coming in as outsiders and dealing with an entrenched environment. Um, I'd have to think that it's a, it was very timely. Well, it, it was timely, and, and I uh, thank you for getting back to your original question because I had forgotten uh, what it was and uh, how what changes did I see, uh, and I didn't answer that. So I I started writing um, for the San Lima Star in two thousand and two, and I was there through, through two thousand and five, and then I took a, a job as the senior editor of a pioneering but short-lived uh, internet wine magazine called Appalachian America. And I was the senior uh, editor there and um, for five years. So those seven or eight years, I covered the Napa Valley exclusively. I didn't write about any other wines except Napa Valley. And um, it was just before corporations began buying properties in um, in California and in Napa Valley. So it was mostly family-run wineries, and, and those folks were always accessible and always fascinating. I remember um, covering Robert Mondavi extensively because he was the Joe DiMaggio, the Mickey Mantle, the Babe Ruth of, uh, of American wine, if you will. And I believe, as far as I can ascertain, actually had the last one-on-one -on -one interview with Bob Mondavi in 2005, uh, shortly before he, he, di he died. So in that period, in 2005, he sells Robert Mondavi to a corporation for $1.2 billion. You know, it was Constellation Brands that he sold uh, the Robert Mondavi Winery and since then, the wine industry has changed tremendously, become very corporate, and there's no Robert Mondavi. There's no spokesperson any longer in the, uh, in the wine business. Wine has become, for the most part, a commodity. I remember in the 90s going to many press conferences in which the wine industry almost were slitting their wrists, worrying about... They're going to lose an entire generation. The um, which generation was that? The the baby, not the baby boomers. The 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 Xers, Gen the Gen yeah. Xers, Gen Xers. Yeah, uh, who were not interested in wine, which gave rise to much of the wines that we see today out of California, of big, showy, sweet, alcoholic wines. Because after all, they figured out the Gen Xers were being weaned from sweet drinks like Coca-Cola and iced tea. And this is how they're going to drink wine as well. And sure enough, they were correct. And they did a great job in marketing. Uh, and I railed against those wines. But what the hell do I know, right? Because they did, they did so well. But to me, those are not wines to be consumed with food. And that's the only way that I drink wine. I don't like uh, standing up wines at a cocktail party, walking around with a glass of wine. I, I'm not a, I don't drink alcohol, believe it or not. I'm not a, a big, uh, I like a vodka every so often. And uh, I drink wine, but I only drink it with food because it's an augmentation of food. And in a way, it's kind of sacrosanct to me that, that it shouldn't be abused. And I remember going to... Um, 
I used to cover the Napa Valley auction every year, which is the biggest uh, social event of the year. And uh, after many years, I saw people drunk, and that appalled me. I'm not a, a prude. I, I'm not a, a teetotaler by any means. Uh, uh, I think alcohol can be a wonderful thing. Uh, but I was appalled, and it was being abused, and um, it wasn't sacred any longer. Mm. Or sacrosanct, maybe is a better word. So that's how it's changed. And be, do you remember um, because of uh, what was it? Film um, took place in Santa Barbara. Uh, <laughs> I in, know what you're talking about. <laughs> in which in which Merlot was derided and Pinot Noir was the thing. Um, anyway, it killed Merlot, so they decided to make Merlot like Pinot Noir. They made it a sweeter wine, and Merlot sales started to, to pick up. Well, let me ask you this. That, 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 that's an interesting line of inquiry then. Did the, so it was, uh, um, there was the wine industry, such as it exists as a, you know, the council of elders, whoever makes these decisions, um, decide that, that Gen X had a certain palate, and they took the wines in that direction, thus sort of bringing a new generation into, the, into wine drinking. Has the palate changed again, or is it this is what American wines are now? Like, what, what's the, you know, because Gen X arguably was a generation or two ago. So do younger people, what do they know about wine? And how is wine being marketed to a younger generation? Do you, do you have any insight into that from where you sit? Well, let me preface my answer by saying wines are, are not as big and blowsy California wines as they used to be. You know, European wines... 25 years ago were generally 125 to 13% alcohol. When California started ramping up their, uh, their wines in the late 90s to, the, to, the, to Gen X, alcohols went from 14 to more than 15%. Now you say, well, it's just 1, 1.5% alcohol. Well, I want to tell you, I once went to a tasting. I tasted 12 uh, wines, uh, the same wine, with 12 different alcohol levels, from 14% to 15%. By the time I got to 14.4, 14.5, which is just a half a percent, the wine changed dramatically. Yeah. And so, um, much to their credit, it, the wines are getting lower, but they're still in the, in the mid-14s. Uh, also, inherently, California is a warmer climate than is Europe, so it's difficult to get ripe uh, fruit uh, less than 14%. If the, the bigness in California wines was sort of a, a result of wanting to target a certain drinker and buyer, yes. has, that, has yeah. that profile changed in subsequent generations? Yes. So the generations uh, that came after uh, the Gen Xers, very few of them have the, um, the wherewithal, the monetary wherewithal, to buy $150 ca uh, Napa Valley Cabernets. And so they started drinking anything but Cabernets and Chardonnays. And much to their credit, uh, they started drinking, <clears throat> excuse me, disparate wines. Uh, I, I put quotes around disparate um, varieties that uh, we were never familiar with before, uh, mm -hmm. like Kenanau from uh, Sardinia, uh, like Rieslings, which is not, which which are fairly common in, in Europe. Viognier's, they were drinking wonderful, interesting, exciting, unique wines. Um, and, and I love that. Uh, 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 and so the California industry started turning around and ratcheting down the wines a little bit, uh, making them less alcoholic and less fruit forward. But they're still, for my palate, they're still uh, uh, pretty big. So yes, it, that's what, what I mean by wine has become a commodity, it's going as the market goes, and which is like any other uh, um, product uh, in the world, and especially in America. And uh, unfortunately, the Europeans, the Italians and the French lost market value to California wines. So they started making bigger wines. And to this day, you can hardly find uh, a French or an Italian wine that's under 14% uh, alcohol. Yeah. Because they they needed to compete in the market. 
how has the wine industry been impacted and reacted to um, the COVID situation? Uh, interestingly, many have adapted very quickly and did very well, especially initially, uh, by selling their wines online and figuring out ways how to do that and have Zoom uh, chats with their constituents. And um, they did very well and are still doing okay, especially the larger wineries. As always the case, uh, smaller wineries are beginning to now really feel feel it because it was a novelty buying wine uh, via Zoom and uh, online, and now that's beginning to uh, dissipate. What will it mean to 2020 as a vintage? Where are, are, are the vineyards themselves able to still operate? Yes. It's interesting. The way most vineyards are uh, laid out is that there's plenty of space between vine rows so that mm. the workers can get in there and do, still do their work uh, and be uh, at a distance. However, that said, it's getting more and more difficult to find vineyard workers because most of them were from South uh, Central America and most Mex- Mexico, and we know what's happened there with the border, and so it's getting harder and harder to find uh, vineyard workers. So I don't know how it's, it's going to shake, uh, shake out. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting in the next year or two to really see uh, the ramifications of what's going on now. Yeah. What makes, a, what makes a satisfying journalistic piece for you? Like at this stage in your writing career, do you like the profile of a business person? Do you like a, a commentary piece? Like what, what, what gets you off as a writer? Well, because I, I always liked uh, uh, the, uh, the platform of a column uh, because I always like to spout my, uh, my opinions. And, uh, but those are few and far between. One has to be affiliated on a regular basis with a um, with an outlet, and uh, unfortunately, I am not. Um, so I love writing profiles of people who are maybe disparate to a certain topic, people who are unknown. Because uh, as a journalist, you always want something new and fresh and a scoop. You know that we used to use that word. So I, I'm forever on the hunt for things like that, as many journalists are. You want something uh, all to your, for, for yourself, to yourself, that nobody else uh, has thought of before. And, of course, that's very, very difficult and few and far between. Uh, but that said, uh, let me say that uh, over the last five years or so, I've, I've been fortunate, or actually a little longer, I've interviewed some characters about wine who you'd never associate with wine. For instance, uh, I wrote, and you should pardon the expression or the political leanings, I wrote a piece, uh, several pieces on Kenneth Starr mm. back in 2005. <laughs> uh, if uh, your audience uh, doesn't know who he is, he was, uh, he, he, uh, he's the, the lawyer that brought uh, Bill Clinton down. And many years later, the wine industry hired Ken Starr to go before the Supreme Court to try to break the yoke of the three-tier system. A winery couldn't, uh, a consumer couldn't buy wine directly from the winery. You had to go through uh, a middle person, the middleman, and uh, of course that's why wines got more expensive because the middleman would step on the wine also and take their their cut. And so they hired Ken Starr to break that. And sure enough, he won in 2005 Supreme Court decision, which now has given rise to direct-to-consumer uh, wine sales, which is in, the, in 2020 enabled wineries to sell directly to consumers uh, online. Heretofore, it, it, it wouldn't have been possible. So I spent time with Ken Starr while he, he was in the midst of that in 2005. And I wanted to hate the guy because I hated what he did, did what he did and his politics, but being fair and balanced. I actually liked the man. He was very personable, very smart. And I remember riding in his car one day. He just uh, uh, had a, uh, a grandson or granddaughter. His daughter lived in Walnut Creek, and we talked about that. And it was, you know, it was nice one-on-one conversation. Years later, 
I interviewed, again, pardon the expression, Rupert Murdoch. Mm. Now, what does Rupert Mur- Murdoch have to do with wine? More uh, fair and balanced. <laughs> <laughs> he, owns, he owns the only vineyard in Los Angeles. Wow. High above the 405, across from the Getty Museum. Uh, not, yeah, the Getty, the new Getty. Is his winery called Moraga Vineyards? He has, I think, eight or ten acres up there. Uh, if you look, if you're on the um, the veranda at the Getty, you can look across and see his vineyard. So I interviewed him about that, and I was told I wrote that for Wine Spectator. Uh, I was told by uh, Murdoch's publicist and um, my editor at Alta Alta Journal of California. Uh, who I've written a few pieces for, that I wasn't to write about politics, which really pissed me off no end. It's the first time that an editor ever told me what I could, can't, or, or could and cannot write. Um, but uh, this was right, this was during the, uh, the campaign in 2016. So I managed to get in a couple of uh, political questions, which he didn't really answer. And then also for Alta, I spent time with uh, Francis Coppola. Mm. Uh, that was very interesting. Uh, and so I wrote a p- uh, profile, not a profile, but a piece on him. He has the Inglenook Vineyard uh, in Napa Valley, which fell into uh, disarray, uh, was bought by many corporate entities uh, over the years. And he was trying to resurrect it. And the premise of the piece was asking him, how are you going to resurrect this when the image of Inglenook really in many circles to this day uh, is of a, um, uh, is plunk, is uh, a $3 wine. Well, he's selling Inglenook now for $225 and it's actually great wine. And so those are the uh, the people that I like to uh, to write about. And as we speak, I'm working on two projects that are not wine related. Uh, well, actually, one is. I'm sorry. Um, I'm working on a piece on uh, the first black vintner in California, name of Mac McDonald. He's up oh. in Sonoma. You know, you know him. You know of no, him? no, no. That's a, that just sounds like a fascinating piece. It is. And uh, we're working out the parameters uh, with uh, that is for Alta. And he's a wonderful man, Mac McDonald is. And, and then I, I'm in the beginning stages of working on another piece, which just fascinates me to know it. And if I can pull it off, it, I think it's going to be a great story. Uh, you're a sports fan? Parts, baseball, right? primarily. Not, not much baseball. more outside okay. of baseball. Yeah. Well, this is a baseball story. Oh, great. In a manner, a manner of speaking. So the question is, who was the second black player ever to be signed? The operative word is signed to the major leagues. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture an answer. Um, and the horrible thing is, no, actually, I know I'm wrong. I was just thinking about there was a gentleman Doesn't who traveled matter. with Jackie Robinson. Um, but I think he was not a, I don't know if he was on the major league team. All right, go ahead. Do, who no, no, to, what were you going to say? You might be well, on to the. I think that I, I only know this because I just read an article about Jackie Robinson the other day in the New York Times, and there was a there was a right. gentleman who John traveled, Nietzsche. yeah, who traveled with him to the to, to Florida to the training camp. Um, You're right. You're on the right track. Most people say Larry Doby because he was the second player who made it to the majors after Jackie Robinson, and he he was the first black player in the American League for Cleveland. Um, the man to whom I'm referring and whose name you probably came across in Meacham's piece the other day in the times was Johnny Wright. And uh, the Dodgers signed Johnny ostensibly to be Jackie's roommate uh, or companion. And nobody has ever heard of Johnny Wright because he never made it. As the story goes, he um, was Jackie was a, a strong and stood up to uh, the racist taunts, uh, Johnny Wright apparently did not. And I haven't been able to substantiate that uh, because there's hardly anyone alive who knew about Johnny Wright. Even his daughter, who I reached uh, this week, 
she's told me her, her father never spoke much about his baseball career. And so she doesn't uh, know anything about, uh, about how he felt. And that's what I want to write. How did Johnny Wright feel the day that he and Jackie Robinson stepped on the field in Florida for the first time? And Jackie was mobbed by the media, whereas nobody paid attention to Johnny Wright. How did that make him feel? I asked her that. And that's what I want to write about. And she couldn't tell me. And uh, I'm running into a roadblock. And um, that's what I'm looking for. How did he feel not making it to the majors uh, as Jackie did and then falling into obscurity? He, in the late, latter part of his life, uh, he, he was a janitor and a driver for a gypsum company in Louisiana from where he was from. Those are the kinds of stories I like to write. Yeah. I'm hoping that you stumble across the, uh, the, the lost or forgotten diary or something like that, that lays the yes. story out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. That's right. Uh, yeah. I'm hoping um, for that too. Have you ever written about music? I did for a very, very short period of time uh, in the um, mid sixties. I did some uh, record reviewing. Mm. Uh, I can't even remember the publications, but it was, it was like a moment. And while I'm a, a music lover and I'm a good listener, I really don't know much about music. Do you listen to music while you work? No, no, I don't. I never know. I, I never understood how people do that. So do you work in silence? I do. Yeah. yeah. And it, to me, it's not silence because I'm a heavy um, typist. So I pound the keys on the keyboards. <laughs> uh, I'm always looking for a keyboard that's quiet. And also, for some, maybe because of my pounding or maybe because of my skin, I've worn out so many uh, keyboards that I've obliterated them. <laughs> so, you know, it's not silence because I'm up in my head, you know, about, you know, when I'm working and, well, Alan, thank you so much for making time to do this. It was, it was such a treat to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Well, it was more of a treat uh, than you know for me, uh, Lawrence. So thank you for inviting me, and um, hopefully we can uh, do this again. Thank you, Alan Goldfarb. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to get your podcasts from. And while you're grabbing our podcast, please also leave a rating and review. It helps so much. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you, be safe, and stay in touch. <laughs>